Welcome to the Chaos and Order podcast. I'm Matthew, and I want to help you exist in the chaos of our world. I believe in freedom and responsibility. I realize we are often responsible for most of the chaos in our lives. So let's cut some chaos and add order where we can. However, change and growth will take work and add chaos. And that's why I'm here to help. Yes, I am on a personal development journey, rooted in philosophy, and I want to share some knowledge with you. Quick disclaimer, I am not your therapist. I have one, we should all have one, and I can recommend one to you if you'd like, but this is not a replacement for professional counseling. So stick around and discover, I am just as likely to be goofy as I am professional, and almost always entertaining. Welcome to episode 25. I made it through my Thanksgiving holiday, and I hope you did as well. Today we're going to continue on talking about different systems of ethics that have stuck around for hundreds of years. Last week we talked about virtue ethics with Aristotle, which is really all about the word good, and it's about developing a virtuous character. Today we're going to talk about John Stuart Mill's utilitarianism, which is all about the word right, right in this situation. And then we're going to compare that to Kant's deontology, which is all about the word ought. Three vastly different systems. And especially today, we're going to see that you really cannot mix them at all. You are probably familiar with one of the following phrases, being used as a means to an end, or the end justifies the means. Kant in his deontological system says the end never justifies the means by which we get to it. That is, the end result ought not to be gotten to by any type of nefarious means. Whereas Mill's utilitarian system says the end result always justifies the means by which we get to it. Because Mill's system is a consequentialist system of ethics, so they only care about the end result, the consequences of the action. Another quick comparison, Kant's deontological system is all about the intent. It's everything before the action. And so with these two basics in mind, they are two complete opposite systems of ethics. Kant, everything before the action. Mill, everything after the action. Kant, the end never justifies the means. Mill, the end always justifies the means. And so you really cannot mix these two polar opposite systems. Let's back up and talk about David Hume for a moment. David Hume died in 1776, Kant in 1804, and Mill in 1873. But Hume set some stuff up that was prevalent in the 1800s that both Kant and Mill are working with. Hume was the first atheistic philosopher in the history of philosophy. He is very anti-metaphysical, we could say. Well, what's metaphysics? Think of anything beyond the physical, non-physical. An abstract idea, or the essence of something, would be examples of metaphysical things. Or your soul, or God, or the afterlife, or heaven. Those are metaphysical things. Well, Hume doesn't believe in anything metaphysical. And so values, like courage, justice, wisdom, moderation, love, freedom. David Hume says these values cannot be measured. So you measure what you can, something like the consequences, or at least that's what John Stuart Mill says in his book Utilitarianism. So let me give you an example. I speak in public for a living, and public speaking is the number one fear of people around the world. Not death. That's just silly. Everybody does that. Public speaking, though, not everybody can do that. I've never really been afraid to speak in front of a classroom. I don't know why. It just kind of came very natural to me. I took one public speaking class in undergrad. We had to give three or four speeches. And I remember kind of being nervous before them, but not really. But then there was that first student awards night. And there I am standing in an auditorium on stage 
lights and microphones, and a crowd full of people. And I understood what anxiety from public speaking is. And I had to have courage to get through that student award night, and courage to come back the next year and do it again. But can you measure the amount of courage that I had in those situations against the amount of courage that a firefighter has running into a burning building? No, of course not. You can't measure values, and courage is a value. But what you can measure is the consequences. The consequences of a firefighter bravely, courageously running into a burning building to save as many nuns and kittens as he can. And what David Hume points out is what has become known as the fact-value dichotomy or the is-ought problem. What he's saying is, you can have your values, that's fine, but don't confuse them with the facts of the case. Or you can say the way that it ought to be, but this is the way that it is. So let me give you an example. It is 3.50 in the afternoon, so I'm going to say at 3.50 a.m., block 100 of whatever in New York City, Mr. Burglar Man, or woman, breaks into apartment, is backing out with some little old lady's big screen TV, knocks over a vase, or a vase as they might call it up there, Granny wakes up, comes out, screams, no, my TV! The burglar freaks out, drops the TV, grabs a knife, and slashes Granny. If you were there that night and witnessed this, or were a crime scene investigator or detective examining the room for clues. While we might all agree that it is evil to murder a little old lady for her big screen TV, you would not sense or detect evil in that apartment building. What Hume is saying is, evil is a value. Probably not one that my listeners hold as one of their main values, but I welcome everyone. But you would not be able to sense or measure evil because it's a value. What you're saying is, people ought not murder. But the way that it is, the facts of the case are, at 3.50 a.m., block 100 of whatever in New York City, a burglar broke into an apartment. We have video footage of them going in, video footage of them coming out, blood on their shirt or whatever, and prints on the knife and the broken big screen. So we convict the person on the facts of the case with what is known, measured, seen, recorded, or whatever. Not based on our value that we ought not, murder little old ladies for their big screen TVs. So what happens is, if you walked into that crime scene, Granny's still on the floor, and you said, this is just evil. What David Hume is saying is you are staining the facts of the case with your values, or you are tainting or corrupting the way that it is with the way that you say it ought to be. And we can't do that. So building on this idea, we have John Stuart Mill and utilitarianism and Immanuel Kant's deontology agreeing with him in this modern world that there is a difference between facts and values, or the way that it is and the way that we say it ought to be. So John Stuart Mill in Utilitarianism says that we must measure consequences because we cannot measure values. So how do we do this? How do we scientifically measure consequences? Well, Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill's godfather, created the hedonistic calculus. And I'm just going to summarize it here. You got seven categories of things like Purity, reproducibility, remoteness or closeness, extent, like the extent of people affected, duration or time, and a couple other things like that. And so we get the catchphrase for utilitarianism, which you could just say is the greater good system of ethics, or the right thing to do is whatever's going to bring the most pleasure to the most amount of people over the most amount of time. And that's number of people, extent, and time, duration. But catchphrases are simple and easy to memorize. 
But what it should be is all seven of those categories, like whatever's going to bring the most pure, reproducible, close, or quickly happening, pleasure to the most amount of people over the most amount of time. Well, that's just a pain in the ass to say. So you would figure out, if you do option A, this should bring X amount of pleasure to Y number of people over Z extended period of time. Or option B, this will bring A amount of pleasure to B number of people over C period of time. So whichever one's going to bring the most pleasure to the most amount of people or most amount of time, that is the right, right thing to do in this situation. It might not be good, but it's the right thing to do because the end result justifies the means by which we get to it. So let's assume for one second that it is wrong to torture or murder people. It's just an assumption, just a thought experiment for us here. But would you torture a bad guy or girl for the information of where the bomb is or where the bad event's going to happen or whatever? Give one terrorist a bad afternoon, save thousands, maybe millions of lives. Think September 11th if you want. What if we captured a terrorist before it happened? And they said something's going to happen in the Northeast on September 11th. Would you torture them, causing one person a lot of pain in order to save thousands of lives? Well, the end result, saving thousands of lives, justifies the means by which we get to it, giving a terrorist a bad afternoon. And so John Stuart Mill says that's the right thing to do in this situation. But we are not talking about good. It is not good to torture people, murder people, whatever. But it's the right thing to do in this situation. Now, he says, we must act as benevolent spectators or disinterested spectators. And if it turns out to be the right thing to do, but it might cost you a lot of pain, but give everybody else pleasure, then that's the right thing to do because you are disinterested. You are impartial. You are benevolent. Think two months after the zombies come. You're a parent and you've got one zebra cake left. You and your child could each have one or... You could give them all of the nutrients in them, and they'll live a little longer. Or let's suppose in this case you've got two or three kids, and you don't divide them. You just give each of them one of them or something. Now, two people are going to live longer, and one person's probably going to die. That is, you must sacrifice your own greater good for the good of all involved. There were some pretty harsh news articles I read when COVID first started about how really every country, every governor, every hospital, an ICU person was running it all based on utilitarian principles. What's good for the most amount of people over the most amount of time? I'm trying not to use the word right to define the word right for the situation. So what's good for the most amount of people over the most amount of time? I read that word utilitarian in all kinds of news articles when that stuff first started. So that's John Stuart Mill's utilitarianism. Kant's deontological system, again, it's the exact opposite. It's all about the intent, not the consequences. It's about everything that happens before the action, not anything that happens after the action. Why? Because can you control other people? <laughs> nope. Can you control how things turn out? Nope. Can you tell the future and know what's going to bring the most amount of pleasure to the most amount of people over the most amount of time? Nope, nope, nope. So Kant focuses on what is in your control, the intent. And he says you ought to do what any other rational being ought to do in a similar situation. It's very much a turn the tables kind of thing. Do you want somebody to slap you in the face? Nope. Don't slap them. Do you want some jack wagon to speed down your street when you're playing in your front yard with your puppy, kitten, or kids? Nope. Then don't speed down their street. Do you want somebody to torture you for information? Well, then don't torture them for information. Kant's thing is whatever we can universalize. That is, apply across all categories. Or, across all space and time, in the sense of 
2,000 years ago in ancient Greece or 2,000 years from now when we're living on Mars? What you ought to do today in any given situation is what anybody ought to do in any similar situation on Mars 2,000 years from now. And he says this is the only thing that pure reason, or really just being reasonable or using reason, it's the only thing that pure reason is going to tell you to do. Do what you can universalize. Kant's deontological system is full of some absolutely, I don't want to say crazy, but technical, super, super, super precise and specific language. He has this perfectly systematic and logical mind that most people just cannot connect to, myself included. But my mind is blown every year when I read or listen to his book, Groundwork for the Metaphysics of Morals, when I stop and reflect on the utter simplicity of his system of ethics. It's anti-metaphysical. That's what the phrase deontology means. Ontology has always been synonymous with metaphysics. In Bram Stoker's Dracula, they call for Van Helsing, Parker's metaphysics professor or ontology professor, because they were trying to kill this thing and it obviously wouldn't die because there's something metaphysical beyond the physical going on here. And so ontology has always been synonymous with metaphysics and really the big category in metaphysics throughout the history of philosophy. And so deontology, day is the negative particle there, anti-metaphysical. Because values can't be measured. But Kant doesn't care about the consequences. He only cares about the intent. And so if you have a good intent and it turns out horribly wrong, Kant still says you did what you ought to have done. While we're close to the topic, let me come back to flying lions. Question about evil. It takes a metaphysical being, like God, and a whole religious system to say something is evil. It can be bad. It can be wrong. It can be corrupt. But it can't be evil. And this is one of the main criticisms about Mill's utilitarianism. If you do something and it turns out horribly wrong, Mill just says you did the wrong thing, not an evil thing. Like suppose, and listen very carefully to what I say, suppose Hitler went on trial at Nuremberg, and you're the prosecuting attorney. He takes the stand, and you start the questioning with quite simply, dude, I'm just going to ask, why'd you do it? Why did you murder six to ten million Jewish people, gypsies, homosexuals, and left-handed people. Is anybody going to buy? And this is a total bullshit hypothetical thing here, folks. But would anybody buy it if he said, well, there I was, reading John Stuart Mill's utilitarianism, trying to figure out the best thing to do for the most amount of people over the most amount of time, and son of a bitch, I forgot to carry the one when doing the hedonistic calculus. Really kind of suck at math. My bad. My bad. I obviously did the wrong thing there. Well, no, I'm sorry, Jack. You did something evil. You didn't do something wrong. You did something evil. And in Kant and Mill's system, we can't really call something evil. Because really, these are outside of our religious frameworks. Even though Immanuel Kant was a very devout Christian. Wrote it about extensively in many of his books. Off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure I remember John Stuart Mill talking about religious stuff. And other works of his, like On Liberty, which is a fantastic book and I highly recommend it. But evil can only happen in a religious framework. And so when talking about systems of ethics, it really comes down to good, right, and ought. You can have good and bad. You can have what you ought to do and what you ought not to do. And you can have right and wrong. But even though all these people that wrote these books were religious, all the Greeks were, because they saw what happened to Socrates when he wasn't religious enough for them, even though they're all religious, they're not talking about evil. Now, I really do think you need to pick one of these systems and live your life by it. That doesn't mean... You can't run your company by a different system than you live your life by or raise your kids by. But you personally really must pick one. Aristotle or Greek ethics of virtue ethics about developing a virtuous character so you know and do the right thing at the right time for the right reason. 
Mill's utilitarianism, where you figure out what's right in this situation by trying to figure out what's going to bring the most pleasure and the least amount of pain to the most amount of people over the most amount of time. Or Kant's deontological system, which is really just what you ought to do because it's what any other rational being ought to do in a similar situation. There's no simple answers, but when you figure these things out ahead of time, you know exactly how to handle any problem that comes up in your life at work or at home. It really does make life so much easier when you have things like values in place, as we discussed with those episodes. Next week, we're going to dive into one more ethical system, existential ethics. But honestly, I can't remember. I thank you all for your comments at the beginning of this episode. If I did, you'll never know it because I'm going to edit it out. But I found some comments on iTunes. Apparently, I need to click a lot more buttons to find those comments on there. And I found an old one, really at the right time this weekend when I needed it. So thank you, thank you, thank you again for all your support, for those five-star reviews or whatever system they use. And those comments really mean a lot to me. For now, I'm going to tell you that a buddy of mine is going through some crap, pretty big stuff going on, and I'm just going to ask all my listeners to send them some good vibes, prayers, thoughts, whatever you do. I would like to be able to update you on this situation here in a few weeks, but I'm going to get his permission first. Because really, nobody around the school knows that I do this yet. But a good buddy of mine at the school is really going through some crap right now. So anything you can do for him would be very, very much appreciated. Until next time, my friends, make wise choices. Bring some order into your life where you can by figuring out which system of ethics you want to live your life by. And really start to focus on it and live it every day. And bring some chaos into your life where you need. By changing your life to making it into the one that you want to live. That you get excited about getting out of bed every morning for. Thank you so much for listening. If you connected with something discussed today and want to bring more order to your mind or life, message me and we can even set up a Zoom console. I am here for all of you in whatever way you may need. But if you're in education and want some help navigating that chaos, hit me up for sure. Everyone, please take a second to leave a review on whatever platform you're listening. This is very important to me and critical for new podcasts. On Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, I am Chaos and Order Coach. So please follow me, thump that heart react, and share all the posts with your loved ones. Help me grow this community for real. Think of it as our podcast. Tell me what topics you want to discuss, and I will gladly work up an episode for you. Until next time, make wise choices.